Constellation, Episode 12, Dub Explosion. In his apartment, high up in a tower block with a view over Brussels, Carl is pacing back and forth, talking on the phone with his friend Toby. They live only a few kilometres away from each other, but in the current situation, that feels like a few hundreds. Happy New Year. Not sure about the happy. It's like being in bloody lockdown again, says Carl. Stuck up here? Listening to all the sirens? Yeah, I know. We've been working from home. It's such chaos in the centre. It's not worth even trying to get in. It's pretty special though, eh? To go to sleep in one country and wake up in another. The separation of Wallonia from Flanders had been brewing for years, and it looked like the split had happened at last, though you never could tell in Belgium. Carl was surprised, though, that Brussels had acted so quickly to declare itself as an independent city-state. Well, you know how long negotiations took in the old Belgium. I think that the city didn't want to be stuck in a deadlock for years. And of course, with the EU here, they've got the power to do it unilaterally, especially now that they've all stopped going to Strasbourg. So, what's our status now exactly? asks Carl. Well, there are only rumours. Rumours will do me just fine. Looks like they'll issue their own passports. Anyone living and working in the city will be eligible. Anyone? Well, I think you'll have to prove you've been here for a few years, but that's pretty easy. Unless you're illegal, says Carl. Well, most of the illegals have registered for something at some point or another. I guess there'll be an amnesty. And EU membership? Goes without saying, everyone with a passport from the capital of the EU must be a citizen, right? That means I'll get my European citizenship back. Yeah, brilliant. Have you been out today? Yeah, but not to the centre. Probably not a good idea. There were more riots this afternoon. After the announcement of independence, the EU states had sent military units to help safeguard the European quarter. The Brussels police, together with some divisions of the Belgian army, had set up control posts around the city. Most people got waved through, but everyone was nervous. There had been gangs of Flemish separatists roaming the centre of town and picking fights with the police. The police had called in water cannon and chased them off into Molenbeek, where the local youth took pride in defending their newfound independence, pushing the Flemish back to the canal with sticks and stones. It's almost as bad as the States here, says Carl. Good job that people aren't armed. Well, actually... Actually what? You have a secret stash of automatic weapons? No, but I have been going with Sam to the shooting range, you know, just to keep our hand in. Just handguns, mind. Jesus, really? Are you, like, prepping? Do you think I should too? 
Carl, I really have no idea what's going to happen. We just try to keep positive while preparing for the worst case. But it's not like we have a cellar full of baked beans or something. Carl heard it too, but not down the telephone. A distant explosion. Must have been in the centre of town, quite big. He looks out of the window. Can't see anything from here. Maybe it's the Flemish again. A uh, happy new year, Bon. The Flems, says Carl. Hey, Toby, do you remember that explosion we made back in the day? Of course. What were we thinking? We were being so fucking stupid. I mean, we could have blown our heads off. Gus knew the way. In Sheffield, just off the Wicker, was a small street with brick-built factory buildings. It was late, but earlier in the evening, you could usually hear a strange mix of droning metallic machines and at least three groups of musicians playing. There was just one band still playing the night shift. One of the buildings, which had been offices from the steelworks, was full of grimy, sweaty rehearsal spaces and studios. Gus came here often as he played in at least three bands at once, all as a kind of part-time member. When he turned up, the other members rolled their eyes a bit, but they always let him play along on his synthesizer or whatever instrument wasn't being used, usually a keyboard, sometimes a guitar, or if the drummer hadn't turned up again, he sat behind the kit. Once, he'd actually got to record at Fon Studios, who were also here on the top floor. They'd asked Gus to process some rhythms. Fuck some drums up was the technical term, which he did by vibrating metal dog bowls with drum tracks using electromagnets. It sounded like a gamelan orchestra playing along. The engineer, Rob Gordon, had said, Gus, you're just weird. Gus took it as a compliment, and it had ended up on a 12-inch single, so they must have liked it. But it wasn't just the music that brought Gus here. At the end of the street was a dark alleyway. Basically, it was a toilet. You had to hold your nose and watch where you stepped. After about 20 yards, at the point where it was darkest, there was a tall iron gate wrapped in barbed wire. It was never locked. Beyond this gate, sandwiched between the River Don and the main road, lay acres and acres of abandoned steelworks. You could almost walk non-stop all the way to Rotherham. You needed a torch, old clothes and good boots, but there were rich pickings to be had. 
Gus had heaved chunks of laser-cut steel and razor-sharp metal discs back from here, which he used as gongs and bells. When Carl and Toby had said they were looking for somewhere to film an explosion, he knew that this was the place. They walked in Indian file. At the rear, Toby, with a big old rucksack on his back and a plastic jerry can. Next, Carl, swearing under his breath, lugged a heavy case with the video camera and porter pack. It was the batteries that were so heavy. Gus was in front, trying to show the others the way with a torch while balancing the tripod on his shoulders. It was heavy going. There were some long, empty factory halls which were easier to walk through than going through the rubble outside. But even so, sometimes there were bolts sticking out of the floor or even deep holes that you could fall through. But Gus knew the way. The others were nervous. Gus thought it was because of the explosives in Toby's rucksack but they were also just a bit wary of being in Gus's hands. Ever since his bad trip up on the moors, when he'd had that altercation with Zed, he'd been, well, unpredictable. Never violent or anything, but once, down the broadfield, he'd gone to the bar to buy a drink and hadn't come back. Toby had heard the barman raising his voice and had found Gus clutching onto the bar with white knuckles, staring wildly at the bottles behind the barman. It had taken them ages to get him away and outside. Gus had woken up in the fresh air and couldn't remember anything. What? Where's my beer gone? he said. The last thing Toby wanted was to be stranded here in this no-man's land with a stuck Gus. And Carl, well... Carl was always nervous. Maybe they'd gone too far this time, he thought. It had all started round Toby and Carol's house. A kind of leaving do for Carol before she went off to work in a youth camp in Morocco. When Carl went round that evening, they were listening to a dub record. He'd been wondering recently what had happened to people's taste in music. Not that there was anything wrong with dub. He'd grown up with it, seeping out of shops, cars and people's houses. But when he'd come to Sheffield, he'd discovered a huge range of music through his friends. They did little else but play each other records and tapes. This Heat, 23 Skidoo, Throbbing Gristle, and the local bands, of course, DVA, The Cabs, Hula, Chack. And now suddenly, it was though musical progress was going backwards. They'd discovered dub, and if it wasn't dub, it was Miles Davis, Bitches Brew and On The Corner. Where had they all been for the last ten years? It was as if punk had never happened. Maybe because they smoked so much dope? Carol was sitting in the corner, 
with an improvised bomb. She raised it towards Carl. Or do you want to do hot knives? She'd asked. Jesus, no. Last time, Carl had burnt his throat so much he couldn't talk all night. They got talking about a book that Toby had just got hold of. Paul Virilio's Speed and Politics. The semiotext editions were small enough to fit in your pocket. Toby had pocketed the book and walked out of the shop. Can asphalt be a political territory, he quoted, summing the book up, not just a plea for the people to take to the streets, but an analysis of the state control of travel, speed and connection. Toby was into the idea of the riot. He could talk about it for hours. But Toby had never been in a riot. Carl had, so he took it all with a pinch of salt. Quite probably, Toby had only read the introduction, then extrapolated wildly. The control of motorways, of roundabouts, of traffic lights, he claimed, was part of state violence. And the only way to counter state violence, said Carol, was to get in there first. Toby continued, bombs on planes and trains were messy, nasty, lots of casualties. But after a clean-up, things got back to normal. But how about the motorways? Everyone used the motorways. If you blew a hole in the M1 in the middle of the night, not many people would get hurt, but it could cause so much trouble. Dromology, the control of speed, of movement, was in the hands of the state. A do-it-yourself explosion could put paid to that. But, asked Carl, thinking purely theoretically, of course, how big would it need to be, such a bomb? And where would they get one? Carol had gone to the bookcase and rummaged around behind the loudspeaker, bringing out a scuffed folder. Here, she said, the anarchist's cookbook. Anything you want to know about explosives or tapping telephones, fraud or whatever, you can find in here. Yeah, said Toby, and it's easy to get the ingredients. I own a bit of cash with me van. Sometimes I bring fertiliser to my cousin. He has a small holding in Derbyshire. I can always keep a sack of the stuff back. Carl got enthusiastic. He was already thinking of his next video. It took them forever to set up the stuff. Firstly, the video equipment, then the detonator. Toby called it a detonator, but actually it was just a firework left over from last year and a long fuse. He pushed it into the plastic cherry can. Carl started the video. The fuse was lit. 
Carl and Toby crouched behind a concrete slab. Where's Gus? said Carl. Fuck. They couldn't see him, and they hoped that that meant that he was out of the way. The fuse took so long, they thought it had gone out. After about a minute, Carl was just about to poke his head over the slab to take a look. There was a huge flash, so bright that everything around them stayed burnt sharp onto their retinas as an afterimage. Which was followed by a loud, deep, dull bang. A crash. A ringing in their ears. Some shit raining down on them. A strange smell. The distant sound of laughter. Carl got up to look. Shit. The tripod had fallen over. The camera was pointed up at the sky. He couldn't hear very well, but he still thought he could hear laughing. It seemed to be coming from the building next to them. He went to look and found Gus sitting on the floor with headphones on, still giggling. <laughs> it, was, it was such a good sound. It was like a fucking, a fucking dub explosion. You should have heard it in here. I hope the recording worked. He'd got his Walkman professional and a mic balanced on a cardboard box. Cool, said Carl. Let's go and look what happened. Toby was standing, staring at a hole in the dirt. The crater was about two yards across and a yard deep. There was a fountain spraying upwards from the centre of the hole. They must have hit a water pipe. Wow, that's something, said Carl. And then he remembered the video. He'd better get it packed up as quickly as possible. The bang had been loud enough to be heard for miles around. They collected their things and Gus led the way back at double speed. They were just back at the gate, out of breath when they heard sirens in the distance. Later, at home, Carl connected the porter pack up to his TV. You could see a slight glow from the fuse, and then a flash. And that was it. He'd hoped for something spectacular. He'd been thinking more Nabrisky Point. He scrolled back through the video. There were only three video frames which were light. There was no image at all, just a flash. For three frames. A bit more than a tenth of a second of violence. 
He hoped that Gus had managed to capture something more meaty. Naima is chatting online. On this forum, her name is Fahim, and today she's trying to find out if the others actually have the ability, rather than just the readiness, to carry out an act. She asks if they know where to get explosives. Easy bro, just go DIY. Sure, but fertiliser not enough, right? Types Naima. We got other stuff. Chemicals. Electricals? Sure, got all the stuff. Thought about drones? Course. That could be the way to go. Where you at, anyway? Near Stoke, she replies. But Naima is nowhere near Stoke-on-Trent. Naima's base these days is Barcelona. It's chilly in the winter, but sunny, fun, noisy, and it's easy for her to disappear. She can be the English tourist, or the Moroccan lady with the headscarf, depending on her mood or her mission. And the food is great. Only the tensions around Catalan independence cause trouble in the streets almost every day. But, she thinks, where doesn't have trouble at the moment? Naima is working in her tiny studio flat. It's almost a nun's cell. On the wall are lists of names. Some crossed out. Some photos arranged in three groups. One group documents the management of the UK company BAE Systems and their offices abroad. Another group shows Moroccan politicians, royals, business people and their connections. The third has no photos yet, just names. This is what she's working on now researching a group based in Birmingham. There are what she calls influencers, an imam, some ex-Syrian fighters. There are one or two technicians, people with clear knowledge about encryption and weapons. And then there are the sheeple, young, unemployed, discriminated, the left out, who are willing to be led wherever it takes. They have names like Abu Musa, Suflana, Muhammad, Abu Bashir, Aisha. But these are almost certainly not their real names. They come, she suspects, from all over the place. Syria, Egypt, Morocco, Libya, Nigeria. And there are East Europeans and white British people. 
Naima can't believe that the police are not onto them. Maybe someone here is an infiltrator, just like her. She has to be very careful. But years of working with Mahmoud has sensitized her to the language. She knows how to talk with these people. The language they use is English, but peppered with Arabic slang and code words. Sometimes it's difficult for her not to explode at the fascist and misogynist language. The younger ones are clearly agitated, frustrated. They want to do something ASAP. The influencers seem to be calming them, keeping them in check, as if they have something bigger planned. Later, Naima is having a cheap lunch in a noisy, friendly restaurant. She orders steak, knowing that it comes thin but still deliciously bloody, with aubergine on the side fried to a crisp. She's drinking red wine mixed with lemonade to cut its roughness. She thinks about the forum, thinks about the young people involved, wonders what she's even doing there. Is it journalism? She's been writing about it, sure, but... She wants to destroy the whole thing, blow them up. In fact, sharing what she knows already with the police would wrap it up instantly. But she knows, even without forming it into a thought that can be expressed in words, that her interest is far, far darker. The group is a tool, a tool for her revenge. She just needs to split some people off from the crowd and take control. She pours herself another wine and smiles at the waiter, bringing her the flan and coffee for dessert. <laughs> 